0: Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission. Connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Now we've taken about uh, two months actually to make our way through chapters 1 and chapter 2. We're entering chapter 3 and we're going to do chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5 over the next uh, couple weeks. I realize we've got to speed through this. So go ahead, grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter if you have them nearby. Now I'm going to say right off the bat... I have been dreading reading these verses uh, as I've been studying through the book of 1 Peter because as soon as I read them, I know what people are going to think. They're going to say, oh my goodness, Peter is so chauvinistic because of this one word that he uses, the word Submission. And, of course, Peter talks about, you know, as Christians being submissive to the government, even a government who is not submissive to God's authority. Peter talks about being submissive to a boss who may not even treat you uh, right. Both, by the way, are very hard. But sometimes when we hear this word submission, we almost treat it like it's a swear word. It's a very unpopular word. But submission is an area that every single Christian actually has to deal with. Uh, submission is not just, oh, get it? Be nice and, and get along with everybody. I mean, of course, we want people to get along, but that's not what submission is. And submission doesn't give any idea that there's not equality. I mean, just think about this Jesus submitted to his parents. It says God, or Jesus obeyed his, his parents. Was Jesus greater than his parents, Mary and Joseph? Yes, he was, he was greater, but he submitted to them. The Bible says that Jesus submitted to his father. God the Father and God the Son, are they not equal in deity? Yes, they are. But he submitted to his Father. And so when we think of, of submission, sometimes we have this idea of inferiority. But that's not God's intent at all. It's just that he has an order um, of authority. And by the way, every time you read the word submission in the Bible, it doesn't, God doesn't really ever expect total Submission. So, you know, if some pastor gets up and says, You must obey me, or, or some religious leader gets up, You must obey me, or, or the government says, You got to obey us, or a boss says, You got to obey us, if they require us to obey when it goes against God's word or it causes us to sin, well, then of course, we don't submit. And here in verses 3 1 through 7, uh, Peter is putting an emphasis on marriage. Uh, where um, where the wife actually is is the believer, and the husband is an unbeliever. Just like in when you talk about the government, when they're uh, you know a government that doesn't serve God or a boss that doesn't serve God, you, by that whole submission. The emphasis, I, I believe, here really is about a wife being submissive. To a husband who's not even a Christian. Because here's some of the questions that would have been asked in that day. When a wife became a Christian, which by the way would have been very unusual in this particular period of time, a wife would not just turn it, her back on what her husband's religious beliefs were. But wives are becoming Christians. And so there were these questions uh, that were arising Should I leave my husband now that I'm a Christian? Or am I better than my husband now that I'm a follower of Jesus? And so these questions are being wrestled with in this particular uh, time frame. And of course, the Bible doesn't even suggest at all that uh, women are to be dismissive to all men, which sometimes people try to make that uh, true. It just says to their husbands, and not in business or education or politics. And I recognize for women, there's got to be a lot of trust in God for a woman to feel like they could be submissive to a husband that is not even a believer, who's not even a Christian, takes a lot of trust in God. Now, I know in our day and age, that just seems so radical to think submission. But you know what really is the most radical part of this particular passage in chapter 3, going through verses 1 through 7, is what is required, actually, of the husband. Remember, this is a time in history when, when men had all the rights and the privileges, but women had all the responsibilities and all the obligations, if a woman you know couldn't bear children, well the man had every right to divorce her uh, if there was anything that the husband didn't like there's but his wife, there's always consequences. You know, you think about if a, if a wife was a cheater on her husband and she committed adultery, well, then she could be stoned to death, but the man could get away with that. Perfect example, if you remember that story where Jesus is teaching and these religious leaders drag this half-dressed woman and throw her at his feet and say, we caught this woman in the act of adultery, the very act of adultery. Isn't it interesting that they only brought the woman but not the man? And so Peter is going to kind of change things up a little bit when he's talking to husbands. Hey, husbands here, you have some responsibilities. Remember, they're used to having all the privileges. And the women have all the obligation. And Peter says, no, 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 actually, no, no, that's not how it works You don't just dwell with your wife, you're not just, or you dwell with her, you don't just become her roommate, you understand her, you consider her, you give her honor, you you make her feel special, which was totally radical for men to even think that way in this culture. In verse 7 of chapter 3, it makes a reference that the women are, are the weaker vessel, oh, Does that not cause some people to get really irate when they hear that? But when I read that, I think Peter's just saying that there's physical differences. Men, in general, tend to be stronger than women. I know there's probably some women out there that could beat me in an arm wrestle. I get that. But in general, men are stronger. I'll give you an example. So this week, I looked it up. Over 1,500 men have been recorded to have run a four-minute mile. There's not one woman that's ever been recorded to run a four-minute mile. Not even, not even actually close. Does that mean women can't run? No. Does that mean women are athletes? No. That's not what it says at all. Peter's just saying, in general, men tend to be stronger. And then Peter, in this particular section, also talks about a beauty. The beauty is actually something from within. I mean, ladies, you, you've met women who are beautiful on the outside, but boy, Some of them can be quite ugly on the inside. And it's frightening, I think, for a woman who has found her whole identity in her outward beauty. Because Peter says here, that begins to fade. It it gets corrupted. It it decays over time. Yet Peter puts his emphasis on this inward beauty that does not decay. That it does not corrupt. And so I think Peter, through all these uh, examples that he's been giving through chapter 2 and chapter 3, submission really, in, in many ways, it's, it's a spiritual matter. So we make it our goal to, to be able to please God. We, we're told we want to be good citizens, we want to be good employees, we want to act properly in the family dynamic. And so if the goal is, whether we live or die, is to please God, what does that require of us? What do I need to do right now? If that is the goal of my life, to please God, what needs to dominate my life right now? What needs to dominate my career? What needs to dominate my marriage? What needs to dominate my family? What about this for a goal? The goal of my life is to love life and see good days. If I was to say that, what do you think? It almost sounds hedonistic when you first hear that. Yet in chapter 3, verse 10, Peter sets this whole idea of loving life and seeing good days as a good goal. Because it ties into what pleases God. It's a quote there in chapter 10 from, from the book of Psalms. And Peter's talking about loving your life and seeing good days even... Get a little of this. Even in the midst of suffering. Because these Christians are suffering. And he's telling them you can actually love life, see good days in the midst of suffering. How in the world are you supposed to do that? In chapter 3, he does, Peter deal, does deal with how to handle relational suffering. Suffering maybe because you're a Christian, or just suffering because of who you are. And of course, back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he really drives that home. Remember a couple of weeks ago, um, we said, you've got to go to war against your sin because your sin is at war with you. We talked about what you've got to do what's right, even when you've been treated wrong. You have to do the opposite of what is natural, especially when you've been done wrong. Why would you do that? Doesn't even make sense. You go back to verse 12 of chapter two, because it's just possible those who criticize you might just one day praise God because of you, because of you lived your life. I, I'd encourage you. that chapter two, verses 11, 12, circle that highlight it, start. That's kind of the, the, the crux of this entire book of First Peter. And here in verses 8 through 15, Peter really begins to, to emphasize, magnify what he was talking about in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And I think it's true. Our deepest joys, our, our, our deepest hurts come from relationship. That's why at times we're so desperate to be all alone. And then there's other times we're so desperate not to be alone. Your life, my life, it's shaped by relationships. And I've often have said this to Uh, a new generation of young people, your friends will determine the direction and the quality of your life. I say that to young adults. Your friends will determine the direction and the quality of your life. And I realize every time you'll hit a wall in relationships and you'll ask yourself, why do I even bother? (laughs) Tomorrow, there will be some women from our church that will go to their workplace, they'll close the door, so they don't have to interact with anybody at the office because they've been hurt by some relationship. There'll be some man that will go to work tomorrow, maybe go up, get up, go a little bit earlier, get in the truck so he doesn't have to interact with anybody at the office because you know, he's been hurt. There are teenagers who will do everything they can to, to avoid maybe talking to their parents because their parents have hurt, hurt them. You know, it's interesting, people can share the same geographical space with each other yet not connect or talk to each other. And a great example of that is sometimes right here in church. You know, you come to our church, we've got seven, 800 people. You know, you don't like certain people. You've had a conflict. One sits way over here, one sits way over there. You kind of smile, you wave, but you know there's that tension inside of you. The fact is we are flawed people. We live in a broken world. And so we have this tendency to check out because relationships are hard. But on the flip side, we seek out relationships because we've been designed for relationships. I mean, that's that's kind of our mission mission statement, connecting people to Jesus and to one another because we know life is better when you do it together. I mean, most of the times we don't like watching a movie by ourselves because we were created for relationships, and yet we live in relationships that often can hurt as well. Have you ever felt misunderstood by a friend? Have you ever been hurt by another person? Have you ever felt like you hadn't been heard by someone else? Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever had to work through a misunderstanding? Have you ever disagreed on an important issue? Have you ever found yourself holding a grudge against a friend? Have you ever felt like you were let down by someone? Have you ever been able, have you ever not been able to resolve a conflict? Have you ever felt used? Of course you have. Of course we have. Because we live in a broken world. And we're in relationships with sinful people. So the question is, how do you handle all of that? What are you supposed to do? Are we just supposed to wait till we all get to heaven where there is no sin and we all get along? Is that what we have to wait for? Is that the only hope that there is when you're hurting in relationships? Can there actually be a mending of relationships? Well, for the last chapter and a half, Peter's been telling us about difficult relationships because we live in a fallen world. Maybe um, some are struggling in their marriage. Maybe a husband says, "My, my wife always has to be right every single time. And it's just, it's hard to deal with. Or maybe a wife would say, my husband is just so selfish every time we interact. And it's hard. We love a lot of Bible verses that are very encouraging. But you know one that sometimes is a struggle? Is when we're told, as a follower of Jesus, there will be suffering. In fact, Jesus Himself said that there's going to be some hard days ahead for you, for all of us. And so, in verse chapter eight of, of um, verse eight of chapter three, Peter says, "Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and humble." He's saying, "Work hard at being sympathetic." Because remember, hurt people hurt people. Love one another. By the way, love is not a feeling. It is a choice that you make. He says, be compassionate, be humble. By the way, this was not a virtue that was held in high regard in this time. Humility. But it seems as though Peter's saying, you want to love life? You want to see good days? Well, this... That's how you get it. Work hard to be in unity with one another. Verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Whoa. Those who treat you wrong were told to do the opposite. That is not a natural response. You know, a husband says something to his wife that's hurtful, the natural response is the wife who just kind of retreats. Maybe your boss gets heavy-handed with you. What's the natural response? Huh, that's the way he's going to treat me. I'm definitely not going the extra mile anymore. I'm done doing that. That's, that's just natural. Those are natural responses. I mean, can't we just be real about that? Let's not be fake. Those are real responses that we have within us. But if you want to love life, and you want to see good days ahead, then you got to choose differently. Like the title of the series says, we've been called to be different, and living different means choosing differently. Again, in that verse 9, there's something inside of us that wants to respond badly when people respond badly to us. Why? Because sinful people respond sinfully when they've been sinned against. There's something inside of us. You know, somebody maybe insults us. We want a bigger zinger to return with. And at the moment, it, it feels good. But if you really want to love life, and you want to see good days, then it's going to mean choosing differently. It means you don't repay evil with evil. You don't Return insult with insult. In fact, it's the opposite. You know, what? it's very interesting when it says here, repay evil um, with a blessing. (laughs) Can you imagine somebody that mistreats you to bless them? You know, if someone comes up to you and says, you're a jerk, can you imagine? What kind of response? Is that even realistic? I'm, I'm supposed to bless them? it seems unrealistic but the question is do i want to love life do i want to see good days if we do then it requires some difficult choices to be to be made we were called it says right there in verse 19 you were called to this one of the reasons we can be motivated to return good for evil is because God will bless you. He, it says right there, he'll bless you. This idea of blessing, it's very interesting. When you kind of study the root of this particular word for blessing, it's, um, it, it has this connotation of eulogy. You know, you've been to a funeral, of course, and someone stands up and gives us eulogy, and they, they kind of sing the praises. Sometimes it's almost over the top. You almost don't even recognize the person. But in general, eulogies are to remember all the good things. Above that particular person. And here, that's what we're that's actually what we're supposed to do. When someone (laughs) insults you or gives you evil, we're supposed in return give a eulogy. A blessing. And in return, I love this, God gives you a eulogy. That's part of your inheritance. What's interesting here, it's it's not like somebody treats you evilly, you just say, Well, I'm not going to treat them evilly. Someone insults you, and you say, well, I just won't return insult. No, it's actually a step beyond that. It's not just insult for insult. It says, no, you actually treat them with a blessing. You treat them good when they've treated you evil. A mentor of mine made this statement. Peace that is most difficult doesn't just happen on its own. It must be pursued. Can I say that again? Peace that is most difficult doesn't just happen on its own. It must be pursued. So here's the hard question. Here's the tough statement. What is it that you need to do this week to pursue peace with someone that you're in conflict with? What do you need to do? What do I need to do to pursue peace? Romans 12 says, if it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And that's the message Peter is trying to get across to those Christians who really are struggling, they're suffering. They find themselves in pain, living under the government, under an unfair uh, employee system, and even in human relationships, they're struggling. But Peter is saying, listen, you want to love life, you want to see good days, and you're going to have to choose differently to be able to experience that. Now, honestly, I don't know, I don't know if you can live that way, apart from having Christ Fully alive in your life. I I don't think you can. And maybe you're even watching here this morning, you're going, that is so unrealistic what you're talking about, John. People don't live that way. And I would say that's true. We don't. In fact, there's lots of Christians that don't live that way because I don't know if God is fully alive uh, in their lives. And so maybe this morning you're you're listening, you're kind of checking out Christianity and you're like you're kind of figuring this whole thing out. I just wanted to let you know this could be your life too if you would surrender your life to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who makes the difference. He's the one who molds and shapes us to be different than what we once were. And so I would encourage you, wherever you may be today, in your car, listening, at home, in bed, in the living room, at the office, wherever you may be, at the park, if you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, if you've never had your life transformed by the power of Jesus, I encourage you right where you are, Invite him into your life. Let him transform you. I pray that you just recognize that he is the savior of the world. He's the one who went to the cross for you and died for your sins so you could be fully alive. So you could love life and see good days. Thanks for listening, and consider joining us live on Sundays at nine fifteen and eleven AM. For our address, directions, and any other information, find us online at templebaptist.com.